2: I usually start each episode with a piece that I've written that I've spent time on that I've gotten to kind of marinate on and like marinate about of what I want to speak on in relation to the guests that I have on this show. And today I'm going to be a little bit more off the cuff. I tend to overthink how like anything that I'm really really excited about. I can't believe that it's happening. Um, it feels kind of a little bit like a pinch me moment i can overthink to the point of where my mind just becomes a blank screen you know a blank word document staring back at me with just that little cursor just like you know beeping saying say something say something um this also happens to me when i run into someone that i'm a big fan of i do not do well when I see, uh, you know, famous people in the wild that I'm a huge fan of, I am not someone that runs up to meet my hero. I will hide far away in the back corner and just stare at them like a creeper. That is how I handle those situations because I, if I were to walk up to them, I just turn into that blank page with that with that cursor just waiting for me to say something. So I'm just going to be a little bit more off the cuff today because this blank page just keeps staring at me. And the reality is I'm just so excited about today's episode because I got to be a fan. I love reality television. I've been a very big fan for a long time. I grew up watching Real World and Road Rules. I watched, you know, The Simple Life. I watched the first season of The Bachelor way back in the day. I've been part of Bachelor Nation, a big fan. I was very heavy into Teen Mom, Teen Mom OG. Uh, I've watched every season of Jersey Shore. I know way too much about the Jersey Shore. I mean, I could not retain anything from history class in high school, but Jersey Shore history... Let's go. I will go to that game trivia night anytime. I'm late to the Real Housewives franchises. This has just been in the last couple of years that I have dove in. And that's really the only way you can do it, I have found, is you got to just jump in. You can't just dip your toe into the Real Housewives. You just got to cannonball in. And that's exactly what I did. I finally got over being intimidated by the fact that I was too late to the party, too late to the game. And all in one year, I just dove in to, uh, you know, just casually starting to watch. I watched The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. I watched The Real Housewives of Orange County, Real Housewives of New York, and Real Housewives of Potomac. I felt like that's what I could handle at the time. And I just couldn't get enough. I loved not only watching these shows on a week-to-week basis, I missed that form of television. By the way, I didn't realize how much I, I missed The anticipation of seeing a new episode, you know, just waiting for an entire week to see the next episode because now so many things are streaming. You get it all at once. You binge watch it. And so it was so fun to be back in that kind of traditional format of watching a show and be so excited for what used to be called water cooler talk. Like you'd recap what happened on the show the next day when you were, you know, with friends or with, around a group of people. But nowadays it happens online, on social media. So that was, I, I just fell in love with not only the Housewives franchises, I started loving these Housewives. I loved the storylines. I loved the way that the shows are produced. I loved also the community that, it, it, you know, it is involved and lives on within these the franchises online. It has become my form of... <laughs> of meditation, of, of just like a peaceful place. It is something that anchors me in a stressed out week. I can know that I'm going to get to my housewives night and I can just watch and kind of quiet my brain on everything else and just purely just enjoy it. It's not even a guilty pleasure. It is like, it's a pleasure, pleasure. And I appreciate, um, the work that these women do and that the producers do and that Andy Cohen does. Uh, If you've not ever watched any of the Housewives show, I really, truly, if, you know, why not just try it, cannonball in. There's a fantastic book called Not All Diamonds in Rosé by Dave Quinn. And it is essentially, it's like the story of how the Housewives franchise became. It is like a great anthology to each and every season, except for one, because one is much newer. So, even if you're too intimidated by the shows that it, the franchises that have been on for many, many years, one that you can easily jump into because there's only three seasons out is The Real Housewives of Salt Lake City. And that is the first time that I watched one of these franchises from the very beginning. And these housewives came to play. It is a fantastic series of the franchise and immediately within season one I already had a fan I mean of course there's different personalities and that are more that are like super entertaining and really funny but there was one housewife in particular where I was like "Ooh, she's so cool in a dream world we're best friends um and that would be so fun and (laughs) and I, I was like oh that'd be so cool to be you know besties and it just so happens, here we are, you know, there's three seasons later. I uh, have reached out on social media and, you know, I, I couldn't believe it. But Heather Gay responded and and was interested in coming to sit with me and be interviewed on this podcast. If you have not uh, watched the Real Housewives, that's okay. I'm going to tell you a little bit about Heather. Uh, Heather also has a book coming out called Bad Mormon. If you do watch the Real Housewives, you know that it's been heavily, you know, her writing the book and why she's written the book has been heavily featured in this last season of the show. And so I get to just fangirl. I am so excited to hang out with my bestie who has no idea that she's my bestie um, <laughs> and just be a fan because it, it, you know, with all the things that have happened in these last couple of years, even with the pandemic, high stress levels, this was, you know, a show that has just brought so much um, just just joy and and just comfort. And, and like, it's just been a wonderful reality show experience. And uh, and and Heather's been a huge part of that, so I'm so excited to be able to fan out. I'm so excited to also get to know more about Heather's life before she entered the franchise, and that's really what her book is about. She sent me the book before it can. It's you know it's out now. Um, I got it early, so I got to read. It. I read it cover to cover. Um, but just a little bit about Heather. Heather is a member of the Real Housewives of Salt Lake City, and in her book bad Mormon, she bravely writes about her experiences of growing up in the Mormon church. And that is something that sets The Real Housewives of Salt Lake City, I think apart from the other franchises, is that kind of the extra member of the show is Mormonism. You know, kind of like when you watch Sex and the City, like the city of New York was its ex- was like the fifth character. That's kind of how Mormonism is within the show, of like within Salt Lake City. And so Heather writes about this in her book. She also writes about events that led to her divorce, that led to her opportunity to join the Housewives franchise. I'm just thrilled that Heather is willing to come onto this podcast because she could not be more of an example of a super bloom. She, Her story is perfect for all the reasons why I wanted to start this podcast. So I'll, I will tell you a little bit about Heather and her book, which is what we're going to be discussing today, because it's really her lead up to joining the franchise uh, of, the, of the Real Housewives franchises. So um, her book, Bad Mormon, is all the lead up before we see her on screen for the Real Housewives of Salt Lake City. In Bad Mormon, Heather Gay bravely writes about her experiences of growing up in the Mormon church, as well as the events that led to her divorce, her opportunity to join the Housewives franchise, and Heather's separation from the church in recent years. And I just want to prepare you for this interview, because if you are a big Housewives fan, and you're just like... Eager for like all the dirt. Like, I totally get it. You know, there are a million Reddit chat rooms and interviews and Instagram pages and TikTok breakdowns and post show segments and a whole bunch of podcasts that just give, gets you all the burning fandom questions that just like digs up all that crazy dirt. And I get that. I totally understand it. You're wanting to get that dirt, but this is not the interview for that. That is not what I'm trying to do here today. Heather makes it a safe place to not be burdened by shame that doesn't belong to us. And instead, she shows us that we can be an accepting and a willing participant in the process of our own self-growth. Her being freaking hilarious in her confessionals and in her book doesn't hurt either. She is, she is just, she's very, very funny Um, and has such a kind, open heart you can feel all of this and more when you read her memoir, Bad Mormon, which is out. It's out now. And again, I read it cover to cover. It's fantastic. She also has an audio version that she reads, which is a beautiful way to take in a book when you get to hear someone tell their own story. So until you can get your hands or your ears on a copy, please enjoy my conversation with Heather Gay. I am so excited to be speaking with you. Um, and I, I feel like there's so many. There's so many things to talk about. Obviously, I read your book. Thank you for sending it early. Um, and I just, there was so much I didn't know because obviously I watched the show and I follow you on social media. Um, but I, I just feel like the important place to start is who would have thought a bad Botox job would be so life-changing?
3: I mean, I know you're a skincare aficionado and Botox how embarrassing is it to walk around with bad Botox and and not know that it's absolutely noticeable to everyone except you, you know? It was this horrifying realization that like I have no self-divination at all with what my face is doing and how I'm aging and how it's perceived by people. That was a telling moment, but it was the breakthrough moment that really created everything
2: it really did. Um and so we'll get there. We'll definitely okay. get there within this conversation. But I just I laughed so hard cuz I've also had a bad botox moment. I haven't done a lot of botox in my life cuz I I feel like I'm kind of cursed when it comes to plastic surgery, which is a whole other podcast episode, <laughs> but I I got my masseter muscles injected with botox and they did too much so then I couldn't smile. Like I just always looked like concerned and con- <laughs> like my face just always looked very like like I was sucking on a lemon for, and it lasts for like six months. It just it was like a very interesting period of time where like my smile was taken away from me. So um, I'm glad that at least you had more come, more positive stuff
3: come out of the the failed Botox. I mean, it wasn't, it didn't like dissolve my joy. Yeah, like, yeah. I mean that is a metaphor though, to have your smile taken away. And a funny housewife full circle is when I did my first casting audition tape, you know, that I talked, like talk about in the book, but I didn't talk about this particular detail. I had gotten Botox in my chin to get rid of that orange peel chin. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't speak either. So I had to do the interview holding my chin. You did. To, to, So I had full motion of my, I didn't even put that in the book. I just realized. But well, we make it so, work. Yeah. We it's make like it you work. Last smile. And I auditioned for housewives holding yeah, my chin. So you had, I had to hold, you had to hold, pull yourself up by <laughs> your chin. chin you up, know, girl. that's
2: what you got to chin up. <laughs> um, well, in, in, you know, diving into your, obviously beyond your book, just reading other interviews that you've been a part of. There was, um, I read an interview that came out, uh, in 2020 before the show premiered that you had with the salt lake tribune. And, uh, And that you mentioned, you know, you spoke about why you wanted to join the franchise in relation to also your experience growing up Mormon. And one of the things that you said, which was just really kind of hit me in the heart, was you said that transitioning from your faith felt like a slow bleed. And the fact that that's where it all started, and I think that we forget now a couple seasons into the franchise of Salt Lake City, you know, the Real Housewives of Salt Lake City, that that is where you began um, at the start of this franchise. So I want to, for anyone that doesn't really know much about you or your story, your book is called Bad Mormon. Obviously, you grew up Mormon. And I think that in pop culture media, you know, we... We know, like, you know, the Book of Mormon. We we imagine people coming up to doorsteps and in suits when they're young teenagers trying to, like, welcome you to Mormonism. <laughs> I'm trying to think what other, like, stereotypes that there are.
3: But but can like you... kind of the Mormon bloggers, the mom yes. bloggers. Yes, yes, yeah. yes, yes. Um,
2: the mom talk, but with the Mormons, right. <laughs> a Mormon <laughs> mom talk. But uh, can you explain a little bit about just maybe like a baseline of what Mormonism is? for anyone that doesn't know.
3: The top line of Mormonism is it's a Christian faith, a Protestant faith that emerged in the 1800s and has just had exponential growth. But it's a church that believes in the Bible, but also believes in a second book of scripture that they feel is divine and another testament of Jesus Christ when he visited America during the three days that he was in the tomb um, in Jerusalem. So it's kind of like this add-on scripture that we... uh, Added to the Bible. And we believe in modern day Revelation, which is like prophets. We are run by an organization of men. We believe that. It's a patriarchal organization and only men have um, power and only men can organize and be in charge of men, but women can be in charge of other women and children. And it's just a Christian faith that is far reaching. And it's also an institution and a culture that informed, you know, every decision in my life from the time I was born. I thought that Mormonism was like the world's faith. It was the center of my universe. I didn't even know it was a small Protestant religion I thought it was the world's religion and that ultimately everyone would be converted to Mormonism it was the only true church on the face of the earth and we were the only one that had all of the scriptures all of the knowledge and really the key and plan to a happy life the, the plan of happiness came from Mormonism and I really didn't know anything different until the plan of happiness like imploded in front of me you know
2: Well, and and you began to start questioning things, which comes usually later in those, you know, middle school teen years as, you know, as I think we are brains our bodies or hormones or everything begins to develop and we start to question things. It's actually, it's a good thing. It is a healthy thing at that age. You can talk to any psychologist, like it is your job in your teen years and tween years to question everything around you. Um, but it was so beautiful and idyllic to hear you talk about your childhood. I mean, you grew up, there's um, six of you, right? Three girls, three mm-hmm. boys, yep. um, both your parents, also Mormons from day one. It's not mm-hmm. like you guys converted in the middle of your childhood. Childhood. and you were always surrounded by a lot of community, a lot of family um, and a lot of love. And so I it, it, it can see where in these you looking back at these young years, why would you question anything when, it, you know, it's the same thing. Like I, I grew up going to church. My parents were not so re- like l- religious where I have any kind of qualms about it at this point. Like I don't feel I didn't feel what I know other people who grew up very involved in their church might feel later on in life. But I loved Sundays. I was like, it's the rituals. It's going to lunch after it's the church bands. Like it was fun.
3: Yeah. You know, I, why would I strive or look anywhere else when I, you know, when it seemed to be the perfect plan, you know, it worked when everything fits into that mold, you know, it's, it's really beautiful. It's a nuclear family with ritual and tradition and faith and community. And even living in Denver and not like in the heart of Mormonism in Salt Lake, there was that absolute community. I've always felt like I had a greater family because of the church. And so I, when you start to question that, like you said, in your teen years and you develop identity that doesn't fit in, instead of saying, oh, I'm going to look elsewhere, you just kill off those parts of yourself that don't fit in because that urge to belong and to be accepted is really the strongest, you know, emotion I felt is I wanted to be connected to my parents and to my siblings and to this community. And if that meant I had to change and, you know, die inside, so be it because it was worth it. The sacrifice would be worth it in order to be accepted and to belong.
1: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
2: Well, the time has come. It's time for me to start paying attention to what I'm putting into my body. I need fuel. I need energy. I need plant-based proteins and superfoods. Well, thank goodness 310 Nutrition is helping me and you my listeners in this new year with protein and superfood rich products with so many options of delicious flavors and preferences. I can't just drink water. I like water with flavor. I like protein with flavor. And thank goodness, 310 Nutrition offers so many different options. They have six flavors like lemon lime, strawberry, peach mango, wild berry, watermelon, and cucumber which is exactly what I need when I'm trying to hydrate throughout the day because you know I love my cold brew coffees, but those are dehydrating and I need to rehydrate. So thank goodness their Hydrate Point supercharges water with key vitamins, electrolytes, and minerals. You just add one stick of Hydrate Mix into 16 ounces of water, which can provide the same amount of hydration that is equal to drinking two to three bottles of water, and I need it. Not only am I getting rehydrated, but it helps to start my day with more energy, greater focus. I'm feeling refreshed while maintaining my hydration without having to drink as much H2O on its own. Right now, 310 is celebrating a new year of goals with Super Bloom and giving my listeners 50% off up to $100 for your first order. With so many sample packs, new products, it is really fun and easy to put together an order or start a subscription on products that you know you're going to use. So go to 310nutrition.com and use the code SUPERBLOOM right now for 50% up to $100 for your first order. That's 310nutrition.com and use code SUPERBLOOM. I feel like there's also an undercurrent of once you start to hit those teen and tween years and not just you in general I just mean with anyone i know who's grown up very deep in a, a religion that all of a sudden starts to go no this is shameful this is wrong um it's usually around those years um and there was just one story in in chapter within the book that i just it really struck me and i feel like this is not specific to mormonism it also happens in so many other Um, religious organizations where you were basically brought in, and I don't
3: know, it's not a priest. It's like- who? It's it's our equivalent of a priest. It's a bishop, but he's just a married dad. So he's not like, he's not a professional. All of our religious leaders are members of the community. It's a lay uh, clergy. So he's a dad with a normal job, but he also dedicates like half of his life to being a priest to our parish.
2: Yeah. I just, I ha- you know, which chapter I'm t- where you yeah, go totally in the- and he asks you about your, whether you've been kissing, touching, having sexual thoughts, whether you've acted on them for you to describe them to him. And it, it's just, it's so interesting where all of a sudden you go through this idyllic, you know, experience within a religion and community. And then you have a moment like that where you're just like, oh, wait, nope, I let's, let's park Let's just park the car here for a minute and just put shine some lights and go, wait, this is not okay. This is yeah. not okay at all. And at what point, you know, in, in the moment, you don't know better or not. And I just can't, just reading that. It just, I was like, oh no, and this sets up so much for what's what can happen for anyone in the rest of their life when it comes to feeling shame, feeling safe, um, trusting adult authority figures, you know, their own perspective on who they are and their self-worthiness, their sexuality, all of it. It just, I felt like that just like stopped me in my tracks reading that.
3: Yeah, I, I love that you felt the poignancy of that because I, I too felt like when you're Steeped in a faith and you're being, you know, questioned about your amoral thoughts, feelings, or practices. It's the greater, uh, really tragedy is that you as a young adult shape who you actually are. Because you you just think, well, wait, I am having those thoughts. Those thoughts are bad. I'm going to shut them down. And I think for a lot of people that, a lot of queer people in the church, they just felt like, well, I'm not going to tell the bishop that. I'm just going to pretend it's not happening. I'm going to deny who I am. I'm going to deny what I need. I'm going to deny what I want. Because he's obviously asking me, because if I say, if I answer the question in the wrong way, I'm full of shame, I'm going to be punished, I'm going to be ousted, you know, so it shapes how we even identify ourselves, let alone, you know, identify to our external community. And that that's where the unpacking and the mental baggage comes from, I think, because we, that duty to self and duty to God, it gets reversed at a time where it's crucial that we figure out who we actually are. But we're so dedicated to the practice of the faith and to our family and to the religion that we deny our duty to self and we deny feelings we're having, we deny who we might actually be. I mean, I wanted to be a 110 pound homemaking blonde mother, and that's not who I am. You know, I'm. A, a, a lot of things that don't fit in that box. But guess what? The church didn't change to accommodate me. I changed to accommodate my ex, the expectations of me. Did you remember
2: events like that? Or did they kind of start coming back to you when you started writing the book?
3: No, I mean, I remember them. It's weird, the things that leave an imprint. You know, I, I read an article you wrote about uh, Christmas traditions. And like, as I'm like you, you know, like over the top, the just trying to create these huge moments. Mm -hmm. But then when I would reflect back on what I loved about Christmas, you know, it was, it was never like the Ewok village, you know, it was like something, it was, it was just the unpacking of the ornaments, you know, the, the, the cookies that you could expect, you know, the night you all do gingerbread houses and it's the small things. So it, that really helped inform a lot of the stories that I shared in the book, but I also kept journals. I kept extensive journals because I think at heart, you know, it makes me emotional to say it, but I think I always was a writer, you know, and just, but that wasn't an option for me. And so these journals were funny and my letters during my mission and my letters to my friends, like this is before texting. So we wrote physical notes and I have folded notes about the boys I liked about my bishops interviews. You know, I kept everything. And it's the one time that you know, Marie Kondo got it wrong because all of of this sparked so much joy for me, you know, like it's to go back and be a hoarder and see who I was and see how I didn't even acknowledge who I was to myself. I just would deny it, deny it, deny it. You know, like I'm never going to think that again, or I can't believe I said that. And instead of kind of indulging the creative, and this is for all women, all people, you know, we just we figure out what edges we're bumping into and we either lean in or we cut them out. And I think I had a tendency to cut out anything that didn't make me a better version of a wife or mother in that particular box I had been planted in.
2: But also there's elements of that part. I'm the same way. Like the type A, like, hold on, what do you need me today? Accommodation. Like you need me to accommodate, I will accommodate the hell out of it. Like, this is why I think I was a good personal assistant. I'm good. Like if I have a nine to five, like be here, stand here, do what we ask of you. I'm like, great. I love that kind of structure. I do too. And that served you so many other times in your life. But when it comes to, you know, specifically to... I. organized religion like Mormonism that is not where it's gonna serve you it's going to you can't it's an impossible accommodation because it is a completely it erases everything that i mean it sounds like i i I'm not mormon I've never practiced mormonism I'm not trying to shame anyone that is continuing to practice but also it that it sounds like it just really makes you um detach from your thoughts your you know, your light, your ideas, and there's only one way of doing things. Did you ever have these conversations with your mom, especially in years of adolescence? I mean, because she, she is, uh, was very passionate about Mormonism as well. It's not like yeah. you were in a family where people were like, ah, I don't know. I don't want to do this, mom. Like everyone was- Yeah, follow was, your heart. Yeah.
3: I mean, they say follow your heart, but as, you better hope your heart is pure because if you're following your heart and you have a pure heart, then you're going to follow it right back to the core of Mormonism because that's the, all that is good and true. So you can't put that on a kid, you know? And I, My mom absolutely supported every single even inkling that I showed any affinity for. I was in dance, gymnastics, ballet, tap, you know, piano lessons from the time I was little. Um, she would encourage me to enter the book post book fair poster contest, you know, like just would help me write. You know, I talk about her helping with my watercolor, you know, just anything she, uh, just championed it. And Championed me being a homemaker and knowing how to take care of a baby and cook a casserole and do laundry. I mean, I can't imagine the energy as a mom myself that it took to school me in so many things that we just outsource because we've been given the privilege and the ability to do and permission to do it. But her world was her children. That was her masterpiece. That was the options that have been given her. But I know that she too was a great writer, you know, and a great creative source. But she flourished by kind of imbuing all of us with her skill set because that's what she was taught good moms do, you know. Mm -hmm. She was entrepreneurial. She had all these little side things, but it was always within the context of, you know, wife and mother first. So... I felt championed, but within that same glass castle, you know, like I wanted to get a degree. I wanted to be good at piano. I wanted to be an artist. I wanted all these things so that I could bless my home and bless my husband and children, but not so that I could, you know, be on TV or have a career or not be home every night, you know, blessing my children with the talents that God had given me. Mm -hmm it's just contained and I call it a glass castle because it's beautiful and it's, but it's also martyrdom and it's also a little bit of she who suffers most wins and it's also. Yeah, not-
2: that's the thing. The she who suffers most wins. Like, and you don't get enjoyable. a medal at the end of it. You don't like, you know, you're, you, it's the championing, championing of your children and the people around you but at the end of the day, we wake up alone, we go to sleep alone with ourselves. And if, if it is only if you are living only for everyone around you,
3: like you're going to hit a breaking point at some point. But when you and when you hear people describe a good mother, they always describe her as as just selfless and dedicated and and absolutely accommodating everyone around her. My mom, you know, did it's not ever about my mom was such a great mom. She went out, she rebuilt her life after divorce, she wrote a book, she went on TV, she got a black eye. You know what I mean? That's (laughs) not those aren't the ways but that's what makes me a good mom today. That's the mom I want to be to my daughters. And I think I want my daughters to be women to see that and to realize that resilience and independence and honoring the creative flames they are is is what what how they can honor me instead of it being opposite
2: do you think you were in a rush to grow up or do you think your your experience growing up in the church kind of guided you towards that because you would you would go on you'd obviously like graduate high school you had the opportunity to go on mission which You know what? That sounds like a fantastic... I'll go to the south of France for 18 months. I don't know everything you do in a mission, but I know I love the south of France. (laughs) So
3: you were still still
2: operating within the world of the church, but you were doing these wonderful, wonderful things and having experiences um, away from home. Um, But then everything happened really, really quickly as far as meeting someone, getting married, and then having children almost, you know, not immediately back to back, but pretty close towards the end. You have three daughters now um, that are all older, but
3: this happened very, very fast. You were in your early 20s? Early 20s. But you have to realize that to me, I was a spinster. I mean, I had missed all of the milestones. You really just, I was biding my time so that my real identity and life could begin. And I believed that that was solely contained in a marriage and family. And I think that we, I didn't have shining examples of women out there doing it all, you know, women out there postponing childbirth. I didn't have a single person saying, you know, you could be great at all these things or you should pursue an advanced degree. You only pursued an advanced degree if you graduated from college and got a, from a mission and still weren't married. There was no, you know, cultural currency in that. It was just really everything was about who are you dating? are you having babies yet? And when all of your friends are married at 19 and 20 and having babies quickly, I mean, some of my friends are grandparents, you know, five, six, seven times over. And I, it's, it's just a different context. I had no map or plan to be anything other than a wife and mother. So everything was contingent on me finding that man. All of those experiences I had up to that point were just me putting a paw on the treadmill until a knight and his steed came to give me an identity, give me a purpose, and the most important thing, make me be visible. I felt invisible when I was just a single girl trying to make it in the world. I had no, I had no, nothing, no one was interested in me, in anything I had to say or do. The second I got married, I had credibility. In my community, with my friends, it was like, oh, it was validity, and that I felt that so tangibly that when I lost it, getting divorced, that's why the you know the floor kind of went out from under me because I remembered what it felt like to be to not matter.
2: You were worthy. It became yeah. your your level of worthiness within yeah. in, in the social currency of your world
3: like my life can begin because I have a man and I want, like a boy wakes up every day and he never changes his name. He never thinks, well, I hope I can have children. I hope that someone will marry me. He just thinks, who am I? Who do I want to be? And what life do I want to create? And if we think about the mentality shift of that versus a lot of women that grow up, especially in, in high demand religions, it's really stunning the way that it Changes our brain chemistry and what we expect of ourselves.
2: Well, and you didn't just meet someone who grew up kind of in the church. I mean, he is your ex-husband, uh, the father of your children, is was very prominent within the church. Just he, he historically his name, right, his family history within the church. It was not just a oh Heather met a guy. It's you, you came home being like, guess what, guys, yeah. <laughs> I met the guy, and that <laughs> and changed- I am
3: set. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
0: That
3: changed my chemistry too because I would say his name and then I would see that oh all of a sudden I'm not just getting married I'm marrying somebody that they care about because everyone knew about his grandfather mm-hmm. so it that it's probably how you know I imagine how it's how Meghan Markle felt you know. <laughs> she, <laughs> when she, you know, I felt like this heroic moment when she married a prince, you know, she was a divorced single girl over 30 and she married the Prince of England. You know what I mean? It was a moment for second chapters for women everywhere. And I think that when someone all of a sudden takes away everything you are and your validity and credibility and importance is based on who you're married to, it's, it's changes the way you perceive yourself too.
2: Well, and then you start fulfilling the role that you were always destined to fulfill. And again, you're in your early 20s, right? Mm, Early, early 20s. Early, early 20s. And you're like, I've done it. Check, 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 check. Here I am. Now this is going to be the rest of my life. And you start having babies. And, And it was so fun to also read about um, cause even before you got married, you've been an entrepreneur for a very long time. You, you know, I, I will save it for anyone that wants to read the book or that will read your book after this conversation. But, um, but you, there was like a jewelry business at one point. I mean, you've been in the running for, you were in the running for a big entrepreneurial competition that you came second to a very huge company, you, um, and then even in your marriage, you're popping out babies and you're like, Hmm, what can I do in my spare time? Oh, maybe just take up photography and start a photography business. I mean, you just, it, it is kind of, um, Have you ever seen Frozen 2? I know your girls are older. Uh, No, I've seen Frozen 1, but not Frozen 2. So watch Frozen 2. It's going to fuck you up. I'm going to just (laughs) let you know now. Because the whole thing is that there's a calling. There's like now a calling for Elsa and she's trying to ignore it and she's trying to just like not listen to it, not pay attention to it, but she just can't. And she just has to go through all the like chaos to finally be like, oh, if I just would have listened to the calling all along, it just would have expedited all this pain and suffering trying to get here.
3: Um, but I, can you, I, like, I can never watch Frozen 2. I know I can never instead of be not around my children, like privately yeah. under a blanket with
2: yes. like tissues. Yes. Just be prepared. <laughs> On a day when you just need like an emotional breakthrough, watch some frozen two. Uh, but but you always had that entrepreneurial calling out there. And so even here you are married, you've got the kids, you've done everything, you've checked all the boxes, and you still know that like there's something else that you want to be doing with your life. And you know, the way that you wrote about, um, you know, your, the, the, the ending of your marriage, I think is really important for anyone who has gone, experienced divorce or has experienced separation. Um, because it is very, uh, you, 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 Put the words on the... It's not a gray area. It's very black and white. And the responsibility that I think you were both willing to share also with your ex-partner of just how you got there and wanting other things and realizing that even though it's what you signed up for, you didn't want that anymore as far as just being the stay-at-home mom, just answering to someone all the time.
3: And bigger than that, even, I didn't didn't want the fairy tale to only be mom and dad have children grow old together with mom, same mom and dad. Like I, I felt like that fairy tale was taken away and I didn't have another one to to replace it with. Like I didn't have any way of knowing how to climb out of that blackness and that grief. It's like, it's more than a broken heart. It's not even loss of romantic love. It's loss of identity and purpose, but you're still a mother. So you can't even pull yourself up by your bootstraps because you have to love and accommodate this man still because he's the father of your children and you have to redefine yourself now with the tag of failure that you didn't ever want. You know, like people walk away from things and fail things and it's like, okay, great. But like I believed in myself that I could withstand and endure anything at the, but at what cost? But it was the darkest, blackest time because I had no identity and no purpose. But I had these three children that I loved more than anything. And I felt like not only I had failed the marriage, but I had failed them because now they weren't going to get that childhood I had. And what other purpose was my what did I have on this earth?
2: Well, and also, did you feel like you failed your religion? And did you feel, did you feel like, because what is divorce, how is divorce looked at within Mormonism? What was your relationship with Mormonism at the time?
3: You know, it's, I was a devout Mormon and I was, I believed that my faith and our combined faith would get us through any, you know, any marital troubles. I just believed it didn't matter. I didn't even think marital troubles mattered because we were both, in this triangle relationship with god you know it's hit the husband and wife and then they both have an independent relationship with god and he keeps that that perfect storm you know brewing (laughs) but it, it just yeah i felt like i had failed my faith and i also felt kind of i described it as like a skin tag like i was just making everyone uncomfortable because i didn't get remarried and i didn't you know drift off i was still showing up at church with my three darling girls in tow and trying to contribute and trying to be a part of the community. And I was, you know, but it just, it doesn't work when you are, you know, when you make everyone uncomfortable a little bit, because you don't, you're not going on the trips. You're not invited to the things. It's like, who invites the single mom and her kids? It's, we're a church based on families.
2: Did you feel a little, I mean, little, the sliding scale use of the word, but did you feel ostracized?
3: I felt loved. I, I should say that the people around me were always wonderful to me so much so that I kept going, you know, and I didn't want to leave or hurt their feelings, but I felt like a failure and I felt like it, I felt like I put everyone in an uncomfortable position. You know, they had to like, be careful. They didn't say something like ask your husband, you know, it's just, it's like everybody had to code switch when I was around and you know, if you're someone that's kind of empathic and you are an accommodator and a pleaser, it's very nuanced and the microaggressions are very real. And it's, it's, bigger than that. It was my story and my experience, but it wasn't being listened to or heard because we don't really talk about divorce. There's very few divorces. I didn't have any single thriving divorced friends. I had one divorced friend who was living in her parents' basement and raising her kids as a single mom, and but with so much family support. And I didn't have that. So I felt alone and burdened, but also putting on a smiling, strong face to show that like I was still a contributor to the community. Mm-hmm.
2: I mean, you gave yourself a temporary palsy. <laughs> that was the reckless driving and the, <laughs> the darkness. But that's also part of, the, I mean, we'd like to think that, oh, people get divorced and then, and then they move on and, and then they just like go out and da- like the other funny thing to me is I think that when people get divorced, how common people just go like, so are you dating? So are you just back out there? What's going on? Are you just having yes. the best time of your life? It's like, what, how is this how society, um, approach it? Like, it's just this baseline approach to anyone who's going through divorce. Whereas I, it was so powerful to just be able to read your guts on the table of just, this is, this is how it was. And it wasn't overnight and it takes time. And you wrote about like periods of time where you were having fun and, 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 you know, being frivolous, thinking that you were on the other side of it, when in reality, maybe you're just putting some band-aids over it. But it's, I can't imagine, you know, also with your three children, you did not have an established career at that point, trying to figure out the finances of that, you know, um, an ex-partner who's also completely moving on with their life. And it's that like, what now? Now what? I you had a plan before. You mm-hmm. had this wonderful plan and you and you can and you can check it all off, but now when there's no plan, it's like, well, now what the hell am I supposed to do?
3: How, who yeah. am I supposed to accommodate now? Yeah, and who am I supposed to be? And and if, you know, if I felt like the there's a glass ceiling on my expectations before now, it's like I had to be living on the dole. I had to just subsist off of alimony and child support. And I was grateful to get it, but that changed my mentality too. It's like, now I just have to make do because I had hinged everything on him being the provider and the presider and the, you know, the wagon, the star that I had hitched my wagon to. And so now it was just like me in a wagon with my girls. And I felt this duty to the family and to just be the martyr or to kind of nourish, Who I was inside, and guess what, went out. Martyrdom, martyrdom went out, and hopelessness went out, and depression went out. And the only thing that even jolted me out of any of that was the opportunity to be a real housewife. And there's some deep irony in that. Yes, so much. (laughs) Yes.
2: Going back to the bad Botox job, uh, you you basically unbeknownst to you, your words were walking around looking like Spock. I did not come up with those words. Those are your words. Um, Someone had offered you to come in and in exchange for photography, because you were still working as a photographer, to come Mm -hmm. in and in in exchange for your uh, photography business to give you some great Botox and then cut to not long after you get the med spa.
3: Yeah, I bought the business from him. You bought the business. I mean, I was offered to be a partner and then I bought it out from him. And then I found a business partner that really the best equivalent would be like, I finally had a spouse that supported my dreams, you know, and when, and when I had a wife, you know, I felt like a a working man with a wife that understood (laughs) me and, and supported me. And we became this phenomenal partnership. And That gave me confidence in my ability to have functioning, wonderful, productive relationships. Non-romantic, of course, but she was really the source that like took this business and we were cooking with gas, you know, we just took it to the next level so quickly. And it was like a kind of nice parallel to who I might've been with a different support system when I was young, not to criticize the child that I grew up with, but just to show that context for me at least was everything. Exactly. You hadn't seen
2: that. And when you kind of see it, I'm sure you know your girls are proud of you. I know that you just know that, you know, but also do you have time where you're like, I'm proud of myself all the time to be like, I, I'm doing it. Like, and whether or not they notice it right this second or see it 10 years from now, they, you know, that always feels so wonderful when you're, when your children say that they're proud of you, but taking that moment to be like, fuck, I'm proud of myself. I I haven't
3: gotten to be proud of myself there's definitely been moments of um admiration for myself, especially when I had the chance to record the audiobook and I read my story like from start to finish. I just saw suddenly the resilience and the rags to riches and the the, the kind of the the strong, badass girl that I was through all all of it. And I, that there, it had always been just riddled with so much shame and disappointment and failure. And that word bad, that to be proud felt, you know, too far of a reach. But I, I admire that I've survived. And I, I feel like my children's, like, they really fortify me and help me learn to be proud of myself because I want them to be proud of who they are and boastful and, you know, strong and confident. And they, they're a different generation, you know, and they were raised in a different way. And so they are in so many ways, my exemplars, you know, like we went out to dinner last night and my, she was, my middle daughter, Georgia was turning 17 and her, I don't know why this is. It makes me emotional, no, but it's... she just asked the hostess if she had a charger and she could plug in her phone. And I, in a million years, if even knew that she was going to, I'd be like, no, 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 don't bother them, don't ask, don't do it. And she came back to the group, and I said, "Where did you go?" And she's like, "Oh, I just went and asked the hostess if she had a charger because at dance class today, our teacher said, ask for what you need. If you need something, ask for it.'" And I like wanted to like spontaneously like burst into tears, and I was like. So proud of her. Not that I didn't first of all that I didn't interfere. You know yeah, yeah, Which
2: is so hard. Stop. So hard.
3: And I in that moment, it was such a learning moment for me. And I just looked at her and I was like, You're goddamn right. If you ask for it and you got it, and she was like, would take pictures. She wasn't weird about not being able to, you know, take a picture on her 17th birthday. And I am deeply proud of this. The strong um, women that they are, and I, I want to take full credit for it. But you know, as a mom, it is luck of the draw. <laughs>
2: yes, yeah, never, yeah, there you is never, know. no, <laughs> yes,
3: it is mostly them, yeah. But it, um, in a way, it's how I know God loves me because they, they were what I needed. He knows me because I needed strong kids that could caretake their crazy ass mother.
2: <laughs> well, and beyond, in those moments, I, I feel like it's that all of a sudden, do you feel like there was just like a little unlocking, a little extra breath in your heart and your lungs that went, oh, they're going to be, she's okay. She's going to be okay. okay. She's going to be okay. Mm
3: -hmm. Yeah. Because you're you're so vulnerable. Yeah. And you just, you know, your heart is beating outside of your chest for the rest of your life. But when you get moments like that, it, it gives you a little layer of protection. Like, oh, I don't have to, you know, be in charge of all of this. They're, they're going to be okay. And it, that gives me chills to say,
2: did you share with your daughters what was going to be included in the book so that they would be prepared? Did they know a lot of the things? Because you do talk about, you know, divorce and their dad and, and the, you know, periods of time that were maybe a little scary, um, mm-hmm.
3: hot tempered between you and their dad. Yes. To say the least. To, say, to put it mildly, to put a gloss on it, um, they witnessed all of that. So they, that is a memory that changed their brain chemistry forever. And that is something that we had never uh, talked about openly, but they were too young, you know? And yeah. I uh, really felt like you have to shepherd, you know, shield your kids from all of it. And I, but they were old enough now that we read the story and we talked about it and we read, they've read all parts of it. You know, I would read it aloud to them. We would laugh. We'd cry. There are a lot of great stories that got cut, but that will be in my second book. (laughs) And so they were a part of all of it and, um, giving them the chance to kind of read it objectively and talk about it and say, I'll never forget that night. And that was, um, powerful for me to know that like this legacy will outlast me. And it's important that they, that they feel seen and heard and validated and they know that it was bad or they wouldn't have gotten divorced, you know, because we idealize everything. He's invited to every single family activity. I try to never say anything negative, which is very, very hard, you know, and I try, my mom put his name on the family wreath at a relative's passing, you know? So it's like, it's, it's important that I think they understand the context of the divorce, and that it wasn't just two selfish people that couldn't make it work, there was conflict there, and you know hopefully they're happier and better because we ended the marriage
2: yeah and the and just for context and and it's in the book that but it was a very big um argument that turned you know it, that were to the point where you called nine one one physical, yeah. yes, it turned physical, so it, it, I thought about that, and I assumed you would probably talked about it with um, your children because they are also all teenagers at this point, and, um, and what that experience has probably been like in bringing you all together and having an understanding. It's also, it's such an interesting age where they're at when you start to see glimpses of your parents is not your, like your parents, but as people.
3: yeah,
2: And, um, and that, and that is an important part of the legacy that you leave for your children too. you know, in certain regards at, at the right time. Uh, you mentioned your relationship, uh, with God. And I think that this all ties into you know, your start on the Real Housewives. So again, for, so you start You know, which would become Beauty Lab and Laser. Mm -hmm. And in starting that, you started doing other events around town, which you also, that's how you met um, Meredith, who's a member of the Real Housewives of Salt Lake, and Lisa Barlow as well. Um, And they're the ones that kind of championed you to be a part of the show. It got you auditioning within the process, um, which you did such a great job writing about the process of of
3: becoming a housewife because I think people are always curious to the extent of it. And people don't usually get into the details, but I wanted everyone to know, like, how this happened. You know, this did not happen to people like me. And this is step by step, the process, you know, no stu- That's That's a, a little behind the scenes that I hope the Housewives fans will really enjoy.
2: Yeah, no stone unturned. Like every <laughs> element of your life is like it's not like you're like I didn't know that I was gonna be on reality t-. It's like no, you know, just from the interview yeah, process, you know, um, and then you find yourself, uh, you know, embarking on this new experience, uh, which is also when you're you're still navigating your relationship with the Mormon Church. I mean, you even went and saw a uh, someone within the, a bishop, did I get the word right yet or no? Yeah, Am bishop. I Okay, a bishop. Yeah. And, and they mentioned that maybe you drink milk on screen when you're in a room with people with alcohol. And so that's where you started the series. And, and so you've been navigating this relationship with the church and this rebirth of yourself within these past three seasons. And I'm assuming you watch the show, you watch the episodes to see what
3: happens. <laughs> I watched season one religiously and then after season one reunion, it was a little, it was a little hard for me to see myself. I watched season two religiously. Season three, I have watched less because it's just been so out of my control and the narrative has just been so... Weird, that I just don't even like watching it. It just hasn't made sense, it hasn't tracked, and it's pretty deep waters and not subjects that I really want to bandy about on reality TV. So, but yes, I watch the episodes. I'm a housewives fan at the first before I became a housewife, but season three has been a little bit of a different game.
2: Only one of the uh, the episodes of the reunion is out so far. So, and I think that you did a really wonderful job showing up to the reunion to speak truthfully um, from what because it, it. I think exactly what you're saying. It was a very confusing season. And and for anyone that doesn't watch or that just needs some context of what we're talking about. On the Real Housewives, uh, there's you, there's always trips, there's always vacations and trips. This one was in San Diego. It was a very tense, uh, contentious trip to begin with, um, and which led to you know a lot of activities, which leads to drinking, which leads to no food. Where was the food on this trip? By the way, it kept getting thrown into the freaking ocean. Jen Shaw. Like, I'm like, just leave the food. Throw just the a shoes, small leave meat and the cheese food. Stick, something, Don't something. take it out on the charcuterie, please. <laughs> um, But, and there's cameras there all the time and you're tired and you're worn down. There was one night where you, like you guys were even, it, there was footage at like 4.30, four something in the morning of you guys still raging. And, um, and then you woke up the next day, you had a black eye and it scratches on your arms and it was kind of pumped into this season of television as if like we're going to get some big dramatic payoff of realization and this all leads into the reunion where you simply say like I genuinely didn't know what happened I blacked out it scared me I figured that there was video footage that you know I can't imagine the other conversations that went on beyond that I'm sure you will be asked a million times while doing the promo for this book but what <laughs> I find is significant is that this all started in which you know, you were raised within a church where alcohol was not allowed. A forbidden. lot of shame was real. Like you've or you've spent your life in your in like the childlike state of you goes to accommodating, feeling bad. Let me be better. I need to fix it. Like I'm wrong. I'm bad, 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 bad. And that is a very difficult thing to, you know, be. All of a sudden, we think we're all grown ups. We think that we've got all of our shit together, and then we fuck up. And then if everyone just wants to like kind of rub your nose into the carpet, it's like, and you feel so much shame and feel bad. And that's what I saw at the reunion last week where you're like, I didn't know,
3: like, it's, it just looked like you were triggered in every single way you could have been triggered, basically. It was such a vulnerable time. I mean, I'm in the thick of writing the book. I'm in the thick of really unpacking all of these, you know, shame feelings and whatever. And I, I think the biggest reveal to me is that I woke up with an unexplainable, horrible black eye and immediately, instead of just saying, I'm going home or I'm going to the hospital, this is not my fault. This should not have happened to me. How did this happen to me? I said, I'll film, I'll make jokes, I'll accommodate because I'm so embarrassed and I'm so ashamed and I deserved it. And that mentality was what was in my heart. And that kept me playing coy and hoping that it would just, hoping for someone else to figure it out because it was my fault. And that's the opposite of that brain chemistry. You wake up like, I had no duty to self in that moment. I had a, a like, if God was sending me a message, it was this giant it eye. It was big. <laughs> yeah, it was big. <laughs> it
2: was of not saying,
3: subtle. I'm, something happened to me. I said, I need to fix this and make it right because I must have deserved it. And that is what I don't want a legacy I don't want to pass on to my children. And I am watching that play out on television as messy as it is, is it's really, um, pivotal in my journey. You know, I hate to use that word, but this is a, I'm progressing daily. I'm kind of, it's like a delayed adolescence, but I, I know it's messy and frustrating. And I, hope that I can change and improve, but I'm so sick of that shame cycle, just running my every thought and behavior. It's not healthy and I don't know how to get out of it.
2: Yeah. Do you feel like it's the pendulum swing where all of a sudden you're like, nope, I'm so good. I'm so in tune with myself. And then it's just on the other side and it's Yep. Of just, I'm awful. I can't believe I did this. I'm never doing this again. I'm never doing, yes.
3: This is what everyone predicted. You know, I'm I'm in the hands of the devil. This is what girls like me can expect of their lives. And my therapist always says, when you see that, instead of you swinging the, she says, swing the pendulum and you go to dark and I'm shameful and I deserve this. She said, just recognize it. And she always does this little motion, like, just say, okay, I'm here again. What can I do to treat myself better instead of just leaning into the dark and the shame. And I, I say that because I want your listeners to pat themselves on their shoulders too, because I don't think it's unique to me. You know, I think it's something that we do a lot. We blame ourselves and like, say, I'm mad at myself. I hate myself. I can't believe I did that. I'm so dumb. Those ick cringe moments, you know, we make them memes, but they really, they chisel away at our confidence and our faith in ourselves.
0: Well,
2: and exactly what you said, like people that watch the show have moments like that. You know, what I mean? there is there is definitely someone who's gone on a girl's trip, had a little too much to drink and like ended up like breaking their wrist. You know what I mean? Being like, well, this is embarrassing. You know, we've yeah. all had embarrassing moments and we are all showing up for each other. And that is the hardest life lesson, especially when you've grown up in a place that says, nope, be smaller, be perfect to all of a sudden show up for yourself and and be that Uh, voice of reason and that voice of forgiveness for yourself. Cause no one else, it doesn't matter if everyone else gives you grace and forgiveness, you have to give it to yourself or it doesn't really doesn't count. Yeah. It Mm -hmm. does not stick. Um, I I, like, that's what I saw. And I, and I know like, it's going to be interesting. I mean, I know that I, you know, who knows with going into next season, I know there's a lot up in the air, but I think it's, uh, It's really actually a nice opportunity right now. I know it's probably going to be an overwhelming press tour (laughs) um, to say the least, but watching you last week in that reunion, I was like, oh, she's got this. She's absolutely got this. She's going to be okay. (laughs) She's going to be okay. Um, What have been the things that you, like if you reflect on these last three seasons, um, specifically in, in, in your relationship with, you know, with, God and the church and yourself, like, is there any kind of recurring theme that you've seen or like a moment that you hold on to where, where you've just realized, when did you hit that? Like just taking on the title of bad Mormon where you're like, no, I can still love God and I can still (laughs) appreciate all these things in my life and walk there. There is no label that sticks and where bad Mormon is just kind of like a fun thing, but you know, you're not.
3: I mean, I don't know if I'm not, I don't know what, I feel like I say bad Mormon because you can't extrapolate everything that informed my life for all until this moment and, and say you're divorced from it. You left the church. You can't have any, you know, affiliation or affinity or attachment to it. It's like, it's stripping me again of my identity in a different way, because I'm all things, you know, I'm, I don't associate or believe in the the doctrine or the principles of the institution. But I certainly believe in my family and my childhood and the gifts that, you know, I learned because of these things. I just don't want to pretend that everything's a poison well and there's no way out of it. And I hope readers feel that with the book, you know, like this is a truly a love letter to the religion that broke my heart because it I didn't fit in and it did not follow the principles that I want to live my life by or I want my children to. And it is destructive. I think it hurts people and it's got a lot of things to answer for. But that being said, um, I what was the question?
2: <laughs> <I'm sorry. laughs> no, I, you're, you're, you're tying it all in there. I think I asked four questions and one question anyway. Um, but, but I did notice that I did actually have that written down on one of my pages of notes of that. It felt very much like a love letter. It felt like a love letter to, um, you know, the positive, you were, your ability to write about the good. And the, it didn't mean that it was all good. It didn't mean it was all bad. It just, it didn't mean that just because you had questions, you were able to also now look back and have some answers as well and that that can all exist. Um, Yeah. And so, and it, it is very funny that you've ended up, you know, with that your trajectory, find, you know, finding you at the at the helm of like this Real Housewives franchise.
3: I know it's, it's it is hilarious is sick. and it it just really I think it's kind of a a story for anyone that thinks that it's it ain't over till it's over. Don't give yeah. up on yourself. Don't give up on your life. I mean, I had was hopeless, and now I'm, you know, have meeting all these people. Oh, I think you asked me what was that moment that like changed, like looking back on the seasons and it was really the fans yeah. and this community that emerged, not necessarily housewife fans, but visibility and and visibility so that I could meet people like you and like people like, you know, that Kristen Chenoweth has been a huge support to me. Just different people that I admire that are examples, not only to me, but to my daughters of strong, smart, capable women that are good at all things you know, like can write, can sing, can act, can speak, can be funny, can be sensitive, can be, you know, a girl's girl, can be a, a girl, a guy's girl. And I want my girls, all I ever wanted was everything. And I'm so grateful to be exposed and associated with women that are striving to be everything because I want it all now too. I love that. All I ever wanted was everything. That That's... <laughs>
2: Please let that be your next tagline. (laughs) Pitch that as one of your taglines. Um, We
3: will pitch that. That's um, a good one. It's
2: so good. Um, I'm so excited. Uh, I'm I'm crossing everything for season four. Um, I know it's been a wild ride and so much of it is out of um, all of your hands. Uh, But I also want to just say thank you for uh, having choir auditions. Uh, (laughs) I think that you gave such a gift this year with uh, Lisa Barlow's performance of Away in a Manger. Um, I hope I get credit for her career. But yes, I I hope that there is also a plaque in the Beauty Lab and Laser parking lot as to where the Sprinter van was or maybe a special Sprinter van parking next
3: to the 15-minute Botox parking. It's really the gift that keeps on giving because mentally we're all in the Beauty Lab and Laser parking lot. And I'm sending you that t-shirt. So look for it. It's coming. Thank you. Um, I
2: have five last questions for you. It's just a little word association, no pressure. But as you and I are very similar in type A and perfect, I know you're gonna take it as seriously as I usually do, but um, but don't it, just Game throw on. it out there. All good. Okay. okay. Something that you like. A smarties.
3: <laughs> I don't know why candy came to me. It's because I've been staring at a bag of nerds. <laughs> I really like Wordle though. I that's that's my go to okay. answer. Wordle. Okay, okay. <laughs> Something that you know. Scripture.
2: It, it's wild how it just stays with you. I was mm-hmm. wondering when you were writing it through the book, like, because like I have like the Lord's Prayer and my seven-year-old is like, how the hell do you know that? Like, that is like blows her mind, you know? And so I, I just was very, I was wondering if it just kind of poured out of you by memory. Yeah, it pours out lot. of me. Wow. Okay. Something that you hate?
3: Um, entitlement.
2: Something that you love that's not family, friends. That's just something that you love. Music. And a
3: quirky little fact about you. Um, I'm a birder. I love birds and squirrels. Really? Like, do you and, actually know what they are? Like, do you do, I'm like, working the- on it. I have an okay. app called Berta because I just bought a new house and it has this beautiful, like, grape vineyard and these beautiful trees. And I have bird seed out there and little bird houses. So I've been attracting all these wild birds. There's bird tracks in the snow. And I love to work on the pool and in the yard and have the birds come. But I also have high glass windows and oh, I've, no. I've lured birds to an untimed <laughs> Oh no. Oh no. So I'm, I'm a bird lover and a bird murderer. (laughs) And so I'm trying to figure out what kind of tint I can do to, to, you know, Audubon Society is going to pay me a visit, yeah. but I'm a birder. That's kind of a quirky little thing about me. I love that. That's amazing. Well, congratulations
2: on Bad Mormon. <laughs> um, congratulations on your beautiful aviary that you're building that yes. is a study <laughs> of really all It's really an
3: experience is what yeah. it is.
2: <laughs> and um, and best of luck on this book tour. I am so excited for you. and And I'm already ready for your second book to come out. Truly. I've been so excited to be- Oh my gosh. I didn't even t- like speaking of beauty lab and laser. I've got my like nerdy. Um, I, I, I love don't- merch. <laughs> I can- Oh no. I, I have had
3: the- it. <laughs> I have the fucking chills. <laughs> that moment. Oh that my moment God. It's quintessential reality TV. Like it's brilliant.
2: This has been a super boom podcast hosted by me, Candace King produced by Melissa DeMonts and Diamond Imprint Productions and advertisement partnerships with Acast.